So this morning, um, I'm going to preach, uh, share with you from a passage in Colossians. So Colossians 3, uh, verses 18 uh, through the beginning of chapter 4. Um, this is kind of an odd passage that when you get there, you'll see this is kind of an odd passage maybe to choose, but my sister is getting married at the end of the month, and she's asked me to perform her wedding. And so I've been thinking a lot about, okay, speaking to her and her fiancé in this, in this gathering on marriage. I haven't done a lot of weddings. Actually, it's kind of interesting. I've done two. Um, the first one was, was borderline shotgun wedding. I mean, like, it, it wasn't literally that, but it was pretty close. And the other one was, was a destination wedding in uh, St. Thomas, Virgin Islands, that I got to go there for free to do the wedding. So I've, like, done both extremes. Of, and, it, and one was certainly more fun than the other. But... Um, but this one, uh, for my sister, obviously, this is, this is uh, really special. And so I've been spending a lot of time thinking about marriage and the family and the home and the gospel and how Jesus fits all into that. And, and so that's, that's why we're here this morning. This, we're not here because Brandon requested anyone be put in their place or anything like that when it comes to he had no input here. So, so this passage from Colossians uh, is it, probably familiar, one, because you hear it a lot at weddings or or also maybe because there's a lot of passages in Scripture that are very similar. Uh, in 1 Timothy and Titus and in 1 Peter and then in Ephesians, there's a very similar uh, set of, of rules or, or commands that Paul or the author of these other books gives uh, to lay out what, what the house uh, order and society's order should be. Um, in fact, it happens so many times, you know, theologians, they like to make up big words for things, and Luther, who was German, made up a big German, all German words are kind of big, though, I don't know if you know, just, they just kind of make up words, and it's, I can't say what it was that he made up, but it, it's, uh, its translation is house tables, or house rules, that's what he called uh, this and the other parallel versions in scripture, and so we see this over and over again, so obviously it's very important in scripture so it's not unique in the Bible. It happens over and over, but it's also not unique to the Bible. If we look in contemporary literature around the time the New Testament was written, both before and after, you see in the secular world around uh, this same kind of set of rules, this same kind of set of order for how the home, how work, how life was to, uh, to be set up. So what do we do with that, right? Initially, that might feel a little strange. Okay, so we've got Paul here who maybe is copying or taking something from the culture, and, and he puts it in his letters, and then 2,000 years later, that's a part of the Bible. Well, this isn't the only place he does that. There's other places in Scripture where he'll take poems, or he'll take sayings, or he'll take other things from the world, and he'll, he'll, he'll write about it, and then he'll say, but we're not like that. This is different. He's refuting that. He's using that as a, as, like a, as, as a compare and contrast with the world. Sometimes he just uses it as like a jumping off point. You know, and pastors do that all the time, right? They have stories. They pull from pop culture. I'm sure Brandon talks all the time about his favorite shows like the Gilmore Girls and things like that. <laughs> is, is that uh, yeah. um, or whatever it is, we use that in order to communicate so that we're all on the same page, right? Because we have these shared experiences, and so we pull from that. But Paul doesn't just 
quote this or copy and paste this into his letters. He actually takes it and he puts little twists on it that are uniquely Jesus, uniquely gospel. Small changes that make a big difference. And after we walk through this today, uh, when we get to the end, I'll point out what those differences are. So as I go through this, I'm going to read both from the, the Colossians passage, but then the Ephesians ones too. So I don't know if you want to flip back and forth. If not, I'm going to read it. But because uh, some places the Colossians passage is like a shortened version of what Ephesians says. And I want us to get the full picture here of what's here. So in Colossians 3.18, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And then the Ephesians passage in 5.22-24, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, which is almost exactly the same, but then he goes on, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, when you think about passages in Scripture that get the world riled up the most, this is probably at the top of the list. This idea of there being a a hierarchy, a level of submission, a level of authority within the home, within our world, that that is truth, that is created, that is from God. And, and I don't want to give, like, point, well, this is, this is the world's problem. This is not just out there, right? This is in here, too. We all have a little bit of a tinge in our spirit, I think, when we're told that we need to submit to someone else. We just don't like that. We like to be in charge. I don't know if this is a human condition thing, an American condition thing. I have my, I have my, I, my guess is it's just a human thing. We want to be in charge of ourselves. We want to be in control. We like to feel like... It's up to us when it comes to us, and no one else is above this. So when we start thinking about submission, both in this case and in others, we start to think first off of, well, what are the exceptions, right? Because we don't like to submit, and so my, my first thought is, well, how am I going to get out of it if I, if I don't like it? And we, it's kind of like that passage you know, where Jesus says, very simply, love your enemies. And the first thing I think of as, well, he didn't know how bad my enemies are. He probably didn't actually mean my enemies. I had a seminary professor who actually, he was German, uh, and, uh, but he spoke English, thankfully. And so he had a very, he had a, a, a very technical view of this teaching. When Jesus said, love your enemies, what he actually meant, if you, if you like, if you knew Greek and all the context and all the history, all that, what he actually meant was, Love your enemies. Like, it's that simple. <laughs> that there, you, don't, you don't have to be German or a seminary professor or anything else to get that that's what he meant. He actually meant that, love your enemies. And so when we think of submit to whoever, as we go through this, uh, we start thinking of exceptions. And there are exceptions, right? But there's way less than we think. And they're probably not the ones that you're thinking of. Commands in Scripture to submit to an earthly authority assume that the authority itself will be in submission to God. Now, in reality, is that always the case? No. Of course not. It's not. What do we do when the authority we are under is not in submission to God? Well, if what they're asking us to do is in disobedience to God, then we disobey them, not God. Now, can I point to a Scripture verse, verse, book, chapter, verse, that says that. No. 
But I can point to the Bible that shows very clearly that the created order is God, us, and those of us that are under some of this us, right? There is authority on earth that is here underneath God, and we, in different roles throughout our lives, are underneath that authority. And so, of course, we follow that which is given from the highest authority. We obey the authority that is given to us, the earthly authority that is above us, when it is in submission to God. But when in there in, in conflict, of course, we disobey that authority. Now, why did I say there are fewer exceptions than we think? Because many of the reasons we come up with to not submit are about preference. They're about desire. They're about want. They're about personality. I just don't like that guy, so I'm not going to do what he tells me to do. It's not about them being disobedient to God or their commands to us being in disobedience to God. So, there are exceptions, but there are fewer than we think. Now, back to what God or Paul says for us here, wives, submit to your husbands. What does it mean to submit? I think one way of differentiating submission from uh, just plain obedience is if we look at the rest of the passage, what does Paul say to those who are in the, on the lower rungs in the uh, fathers and children and in the bond servants and servants? Does he say for them to submit? No. He says obey. He uses a different word. The pattern is broken here. There's something different about this relationship between the husband and wife as compared to the father and children and the servants and bod servants. There's something unique here. The role of the latter two is obey. Do what you are told to do. That's it. Obey. Now, does submission include obedience? Of course it does. But it's not merely obedience, right? Submission carries with it this connotation that it's voluntary, at least in the Greek. In our culture, we have this saying and I don't know if it comes from like MMA or whatever, but we have this forced into submission, right? That you can, you can bend someone physically or through, uh, through the, the um, living conditions you put them in or whatever. You can, you can do things to someone to force them into submission. That's not what submission in this context is. There is no external way forcing someone into submission. Submission comes from the heart. In other words, it's the same thing that God wants from us when we respond to him. You see, what God wants is not just our legalistic, rote obedience to his law. If that's what he wanted, then Jesus and the Pharisees would have been BFFs, right? Because the Pharisees were great with the law, right? They were good with, you're going to tithe? Well, come, I'll tithe from my spice rack, right? You're going uh, to um, uh, obey the Sabbath law? Well, here's how you don't break it. You don't take this many steps. You don't rescue the animal in the pit. On and on and on, right? They were good on the, I'm going to follow the law. I'm with the obedience. I can do that. But that's not what God primarily wanted. In the Old Testament, he makes this clear, right? In Hosea 6, 
uh, he says, I desire love and not sacrifice. And the sacrifice there is just a fill-in word for all the rituals, fulfilling all the law. I, he, did he want that? Yeah. But as compared to the love that he wanted from his people, there was no comparison. What he wanted most was their love. And what God wants in this relationship, in the marriage relationship, is for it to be the image, the image of the relationship between Christ and his church. What does Christ want from his church? He doesn't want you to just show up on Sunday and worship with his people. He doesn't want you to just give 10% or whatever percent. He doesn't want you to just mechanically obey. He wants your heart. He wants you to, be in, to, to, to follow him and obey him out of love. He wants the church to submit to Christ from their hearts. He wants obedience to flow from a heart that is submitted to him. And so he is asking for the same between a husband and a wife. God expects this from the church. Why? Because of what Christ did for the church. And he asked this from wives because what husbands are supposed to do for their wives, which is what he says in Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now here's where Paul really shortens what Ephesians has to say. And so I really want you to hear from Ephesians 5.25. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he, Christ, might sanctify his church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present his church, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, submission flows naturally from a wife whose husband lives for her in this way. The same way submission flows from a church who is submitting to Christ, who has lived for them in this way. So look at what happens to Christ's bride as a result of him giving his life up for her. In, in Ephesians, it says she's sanctified and cleansed. It says she's presented in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, holy and without blemish. She's made better. The church is made better. The church is made holy. The church is made acceptable before God because of what Christ did for us. Now, husbands... We can't do that, right? We can't make our wives holy. We can't make them without blemish. We can't make with them without, uh, make them spotless. But we can follow Jesus' examples. Could it be that laying down our lives for our wives brings them to the place where they can submit from their hearts as God has told them they should? And in so doing, they are submitting themselves to Christ in that way also. Could it be that by acting first to lay down our lives for our brides, as Christ acted first by laying down his life for his bride, that she is given a heart of submission? We act as Christ has acted toward us. We act towards our wives as Christ has acted towards us. And the same response follows. The end of verse 19 says, do not be harsh with them, right? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That word for harsh is used elsewhere to describe authority that demands obedience. This is, this is the harshness that 
that you know, a, a slave master might have over his slave. This is the, this is the kind of attitude that, uh, that forces into submission. But we can't do that. Harshness does not lead to submission. Harshness does not lead to a change of heart. You know that, right? You probably all have experienced some, someone over you at some point who, who their actions towards you weren't loving in order to get you to do, but they were harsh in order to get you. Maybe they were a coach, right? We've, maybe we've had sports coaches who they thought, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll just be a little over-the-top yelling, or maybe they were a little over-the-top harsh with their language, thinking, okay, that's going to that's gonna motivate, when in, rea- in reality it crushes, right? It breaks spirits. Our, our, our kids, are, are, they do sports, but they're, uh, they're my children, and so they're not particularly good at them. And, and they're not in here, so it's okay. Um, and our oldest daughter especially, she, she, she did not walk. She did not crawl until she was like 13 months old. She figured out, I'll just be satisfied with what's in front of me. I won't go get what I can't get. In fact, when, you know, she was our first. When they're your first kid, you care about such things, and so you sit them on a blanket in the floor, you know, and, and the rest of them, they're just wherever. So, but, but the first kid, you sit them in the floor, and so we had toys there. Well, they were like, okay, well, she's not going to crawl, so we'll get her to crawl, so we'll put the toys farther away. Well, we left them on the blanket. What she doesn't have in, in ability to move, she is very bright, even then, and so she just pulled the blanket to her to get what she couldn't get. She outsmarted us. So she didn't crawl till after she was 13 months old. She didn't walk until she was like 18 or 19 months old. And so she's been a little behind in moving from the beginning. And so she's playing soccer, and we, we, we were in her coach. She, she's playing in this league where everyone doesn't have to play the equal amount of time. This is a, this is a new thing for us. And so um, and we, we told her that might be the case. But her coach told her and this other girl just a week or so ago, he said, the reason you're not playing is because you're the two worst kids on the team. I mean, he said that to her. Now, I didn't know that until yesterday, and so I haven't had a chance to discuss this with the coach. But that's not encouraging, right? Like it's, it, they know why they're not playing the most or much, because if they were the best, they'd be out there. But that doesn't encourage. We've all been under some sort of authority that's not been particularly loving, but they've been harsh and we know that that doesn't lead to submission it doesn't come from love so husbands how do we help our wives submit i know that what paul is writing here uh, the first is to wives and what i've really harped on most is husbands and now paul is writing to husbands directly and what i'm harping most on is husbands and so that's because i'm a husband and so that's what i'm working on how do we help our wives submit? Well, we think about it just a minute. What kind of authority in your life is easy to submit to? Well, it's authority that is loving, but it's also authority that you trust. And what kind of authority do you trust? Well, I think there's two big characteristics. One, it's authority that wants what's best for you. And it's authority that knows what's best for you. If they don't want what's best for you, even though they know what's best for you, that is competent, evil authority. If they want what's best for you, but don't know what's best for you, that is incompetent, benevolent authority. Neither of those are very 
worthwhile to be trusted and to be followed. So how do we come that? How do we become the kind of people who know what's best, the kind of husbands who knows what's best for our wives, and then wants what's best for our wives? It is only by walking closely with God that we will want what's best instead of wanting what's best for us, for our wives. I have this prayer that I actually had to check, which is sad, um, that it's still on my phone. You know, I put, I put, you have these images on your phone, and you, there's things that you see every day, and eventually you don't even remember if they're there or not. Uh, but this is still on my phone. Uh, I probably need to take it off and then put it back in a month because I've forgotten that it was there. But the prayer says this. It says, Lord, help me to think of my wife before myself, consider her needs above my own, and love and serve her in such a way that I don't expect anything in return. That's the, that's the attitude of the authority that is easy to submit to. Help me to think of my wife before myself, consider her needs above my own, and love and serve her in such a way that I don't expect anything in return. It is only by walking closely with God that we will know what's best. True wisdom comes from Him alone. And that's not just knowing what's best for our wives. That's what's knowing what's best for us. That's what knowing what God require or God desires for us in our relationships with anyone. Paul goes on in verse 20 to children. All the children that can pay attention to this left, but I won't skip it. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And then in the Ephesians passage, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now notice, again, the word is obedience. It's not submission. This relationship is different. We know that, right? The relationship is different. It's defined by obedience. Now, does that mean that God isn't concerned with the child's heart? Of course not. Of course, the God is, God is uh, concerned about the child's heart. Of course, it would be great if the child obeys his or her parents out of love, but it's not primary. The relationship is different. What are children to obey? He makes it pretty clear. Obey in everything. With the same assumptions that are above, that the parents are in submission to God. And so, and so we must keep that in mind as we parent. And why, do, why should children obey? Colossians says, for this pleases the Lord. Ephesians says, you'll live long and prosper. Nobody knows what, yeah. Not enough geeks in the room, I guess. Okay. You probably didn't know that came from the Bible. You got it. All right. You got it. Live long and prosper. Right. I'll explain it to you later, Brandon. Yeah. All right. Fathers. Verse 21, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Ephesians says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we know what provoke, provoke means to, to like pester somebody or nag or, um, or, or keep at someone and with, the, with the intent or uh, maybe not with the, with, the, with the stated intent, but with the result of bringing up some kind of negative reaction or emotion. I think uh, most of us probably don't do that on purpose. Fathers, I think 
when I think about myself, I don't do things to my kids trying to elicit a negative response, right? Uh, that doesn't mean negative responses don't come to things I do, but that's not usually what I'm going for. Um, what more often happens, I think, is when we think about the end of verse 21 where it says, lest they become discouraged, I think what I see in myself and what I see in a lot of fathers is, is the tendency to, to correct, 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 to the point where the child might think there is no hope to do this right. And so when we have no hope of doing something right, we become discouraged, which is exactly the opposite of what we ought to be. So I think, I think instead of, and, and for me, around our house, we have, we have three kids, and I don't know how many times I say or think about saying, you know, if you would have just put that away, we wouldn't have to be spending an hour now looking for your soccer cleats or your whatever it is. If you would just put that away, right, I would have had so much of my life back <laughs> instead of scrambling around looking for what you didn't put away. Right? Whatever it is that's your thing, and maybe you, like me, have lots of things, we correct, correct, correct until the child can feel like it's hopeless to ever do it right. Right? And that's, while well, there, there are times for, for fixing things like that, our focus ought to be on what Ephesians says, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Because that's way more important than whether or not they put their soccer cleats where they go. That's way more important than whatever it is that they do that bothers us, right? That's where our focus ought to be. And is there hope in that? Of course there is. It's in, it's in Christ. It's in Jesus. We have hope there. And putting away the soccer cleats, maybe not. But in the discipline and, and, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, we can find hope there. And so let us focus on that as fathers. Notice, Paul doesn't say anything here to mothers about that. I don't know if mothers in the ancient world didn't have that problem, whatever it is, but I think it's a good word for all of us. Bond servants, Colossians 2, 22 through 20, or 3, 22 through 25. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, I won't read the parallel in Ephesians because it's almost identical. It might seem strange, especially if you look up and Paul gives like one sentence to fathers, but for bondservants here, he's got, you know, pretty good paragraph. Why he writes so much uh, not sure why, except that there is the idea that one of the guys that was delivering this letter uh, to the Colossians was a runaway bondservant or slave. And so maybe this was uh, to help in his instruction. And when we think about this, it might be hard. You know, some translations do use the word slaves. Um, the ESV here uses bondservants. You know, when we hear the word slave, we have a very specific image of what that means and what, what that is. Uh, in this context, it was, there, were, there was that kind of slavery, uh, but most of it was much more temporary and voluntary. It was more of a, of a, a, part, uh, a, a way of working yourself into a trade or into a craft, kind of as a, as a, a journeyman kind of a situation. Uh, so there wasn't, there wasn't all of the, 
the, um, the racial or injustice that was necessarily equated with what we, when we think of slavery. Um, so so in, in a lot of ways, it's way more like our own employment uh, than it is like slavery. And so I think that's where we can draw some, some lessons here. Um, we're not slaves, but we do have those that we work for. Most of us have a boss, an earthly master, um, that we have to uh, negotiate on a daily basis. And so what are some correlations or some principles that we can get from this as we follow in our work? Well, one, he says here, obey not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, right? That we don't work just when the boss is looking. That we don't do what we do even if the boss is looking, right? We do what we do out of sincerity of heart, out of submission to the Lord, right? Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. I think a lot of us, and depending on your work situation, uh, you know, totally understand we think of work as something that is like a punishment, right? But if, if think about to, to creation, think back to creation. Adam and Eve were given work before the fall, right? They weren't just hanging out and chilling in the garden, like all the pictures have them, you know, Eve's, Eve's lounging in the pond and, and Adam's, you know, sitting there next to her. And that's, they may have done that, uh, but that they were given work. They were given, now, did work change after the fall? Yeah, right? There were thistles and thorns. There were people that were just as sinful as you that you had to work with, right? All those things, that work did change, but work is not, is not a curse. It is cursed, just like the rest of our lives, but it is not a curse in and of itself. And so work can be redeemed. Our work can be done as an act of worship. Some jobs harder than others. I get it, right? But all work is redeemable um, just like the rest of creation is redeemable. Verse uh, 1, chapter 4, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, note the play on words here. It uses that word masters, both uh, referring to who you're talking to, who, who Paul is talking to here, masters in the workplace, but also knowing that you have a master in heaven. Remember those of you who are in charge in places. You have authority over you, right? That's how the authority works. You have a master in heaven. So for those that are in a position of authority in the workplace, does justice and fairness characterize the way you interact with your employees? There may be some of you that have those under you that you are in charge of, that you are the master of. And the question is, do you practice your authority as one that knows that you are under authority? Do you deal with your employees as your master has dealt with? with you. Our master is patient and forgiving, loving. That's the authority that is over us. Are you over those? Are, do you act that way to, towards those you are over authority? So this passage isn't unique in the Bible, like I said, but it's also not unique to the Bible. There are secular examples of this. So how does what's here in the Bible differ with the secular examples? Well, one, the secular examples address the head of household only, 
It only addresses the husbands, the fathers, and the masters, which are, reality is just one person, right? It's, it's the men. That's who they were speaking to. It only addresses the men. But here, not only are the others addressed in these relationships, but they're addressed first. Paul takes this relationship that the secular world has put in, really there's only one important part in this relationship. He, Paul takes it and takes both parties in the relationship and puts the one that's in submission and gives them their instructions first. The secular examples, number two, the secular examples use civil order as the reasoning for this arrangement, right? It's saying, we do this because this makes our world work right. We do this out of pragmatism. We do this so that everybody knows their role, knows where they fall in the pecking order, and our, our city, our town, everything will work the way it's supposed to because our homes are working right. Here, Paul uses the created order for defining how things are supposed to. He does it this way because this is the way God created things. It's not out of pragmatism. It's out of God that we do things this way. And the third way that it's different. The secular examples do not suggest that the husband should agape love his wife. The secular examples do not suggest that the father not provoke or discourage his children. And the secular examples do not suggest that the master is to treat his servants justly and fairly. In all of these relationships, it's not out of kindness or love that the the, the man in the relationship is to act towards the, the, the child or the wife or the, the slave. In, in those examples, it's to, it's to harness, to govern, to rule, to control. Not out of love, not out of hope, not out of justness or fairness. It's all out of pragmatism, all out of exercising authority or exercising control. So why is what Paul writes different than what the world has? Jesus came along. And when Jesus comes along, he doesn't just change the way we relate to God, though obviously he does change that, but he also changes the way we relate to each other. Those in authority are to be servants to those in submission. Those with power are to use it to benefit those who are without. Why? Jesus. The Sunday school answer. But that's why. Because Jesus has changed everything. In Acts 17, Paul and Silas and some other Christians in Thessalonica, they, they get in trouble with the local Jewish leaders and are brought before the civil authorities. And they are charged with, like, like what's, the, what's the problem here? What did they do? And, and their, their charge against them is they are turning the world upside down. They were simply doing what they had seen Jesus doing. Jesus turned everything on its head. And this short passage describes what that upside-down world is to look like in our homes. Now, we know, because we've lived with ourselves long enough, we've lived with ourselves all our lives, right? We know that we can't do this on our own. We can't live this way on our own. Our nature doesn't lead us to live this way on our own. But thankfully, we don't have to. Jesus has promised to be with us as we walk in his ways. 
as we turn to him, as, as we submit to him, he remakes our hearts so that we live as, as he would live in the situations that we face. He changes us so that we can live right with others as well as with God. And so when you look at yourself and you think, as a husband, have I lived in a way that my wife would respond in submission out of love to me? If not, walk with Jesus. Jesus, has, Jesus is at work, if you are his, in changing your heart into that kind of person that lives that way. Wives, if you think, well, I don't submit to my husband because he he's not like Jesus. He's never going to be completely right like Jesus. Neither are you. And so have patience with him as Jesus has had patience with you and live in submission even as God has commanded it. And in each of these relationships, we know we have miles to go. As I think about conversations I had with my kids before I came here to preach about not provoking your children, I'm thinking, I wish they could have found their shoes quicker this morning so I didn't have to fall into the same trap I fall into every day. Right? But thankfully, Jesus is there with us, changing our hearts, forgiving us, giving, giving, giving uh, grace to us so that as I leave here today, as you leave here today, and we face the challenges that others are going to put in front of us and that our hearts are going to put in front of us, we can do better the next time because of Jesus and his mercy and grace in our hearts. Let me pray for us.